0: Good morning, and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumpcher, and today we're going to be talking with Victor Morovic, who is the CEO and founder of KeenCorp, a fascinating Dutch company. Victor, how are you?
1: I'm great, John. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Oh, well, you're welcome. You're welcome. So why don't you take a moment and introduce yourself, tell people who you are and how you ended up in this uh, position.
1: Well, um, okay, it's always an open question, but I am 48 years old. Um, I'm a father to uh, a young boy and, uh, and a girl, uh, so I'm proud of that. And business wise, I've been always fascinated by numbers. So I started my career in private equity um, and really spent way too much time doing financial models, only to find that there was no truth in there. Um, and I realized because we spent, you know, especially in the early years of an analyst, spent too much time in, in data rooms that whenever we invested in a company that was uh, somehow service-driven or had to leverage brain power, that there was very little information I could find in the balance sheets that we were trying to analyze. So I was wondering back in those days whether it was possible to, to get a number on people. And, of course, there was payroll information and, you know, uh, pension stuff. But there was never any pulse on uh, how really the the assets, the people assets were doing. And um, when I was uh, venturing out on myself, I found a group and we started having conversations whether it's possible to actually measure what really is the driver of winning teams. And I think today this is called neuroscience and behavioral science. And I didn't know that at that time. So I think with KeenCorp, we have found a tool that actually helps leadership to become more effective in a different way than today has been available in the marketplace. So this is really what drives me, and I find that we're in a total blue ocean because I think the world is just waking up to the potential of that. Well, so so
0: what you said sounds a lot like a lot of – Voodoo that I've heard about o- over time, but you do a you do a digital version of this analysis rather than um, you know most most of the stuff that talks about helping companies figure out how to be better leaders features a um, uh, a mystical guru in a suit who's got five basic principles or you know the drill right and and that's not what you're talking about at all. You have a uh, a hyper analytical uh, approach,
1: so tell us a little bit about what the company actually does okay um I understand that you're you're thinking that and you're saying this by the way. so if we try to really explain Kingcorp in a miniature way, um, I can only use three words: it's language, behavior, and results. so I think psychologists already. A long time ago, explained that language is a great predictor of behavior. Um, I can carry on for that for hours, but I will not do that because I'm going to spoil your show. But behavior is a driver of results. I think everybody buys into that. The part that was not clear is that language actually is a predictor of behavior. And if you start to monitor language on a daily basis um, in such a way that you can protect privacy, I think that's fundamental to the conversation it becomes a much more effective way to capture data on your basic brain power process than any other survey can offer you. So uh, what our company does is we have got, um, I think explain it like a spam filter that we place on the company's communication pipes and we render a signal from that digital exhaust, if you will, it can be email or, or chat or, or Slack, and we translate that back into a number. So you get a daily number, just like Google Analytics gives you a number on your traffic, on your websites, that you can feed back into your business intelligence systems. And you can start having a conversation about your people, just like you talk about your cash flow or your sales. So it becomes a very normal kind of component that you can connect to your people when and where it matters. Does that make any sense? Sure, that makes all the
0: sense in the world. So let let me spin it back to you. bye by casting a net across the entire digital communications footprint, you're able to quantify some variables. And so you don't actually look uh, at the specifics of interactions. What you look at is the shape of the language in general in the institution. And from um, a sort of an instrumented view of that language, you're able to. make an assessment about something and then then i think the next step is that measure moves over time and because that measure moves over time you can um um, make some assessments of changes and um, elements of the culture but why don't you tell me that
1: sort of next step yeah well i think that your summary is great i mean let's just take two examples take a dealing room of a bank typically filled up with, you know, alpha male, high testosterone, smart people, and the language that goes with that group is very typical to that group. So if the language suddenly would change, right, I mean, I don't want to generalize and stereotype, but I would expect people in that space to be, you know, cursing, winning mood. What our system wakes up to, if suddenly those people will be all different if they would stop cursing if they would be silent or if they would be you know emotional that's odd we wouldn't expect it by the same token if you go to a healthcare institution where people are typically caring and you know they're very alert to human connection if their language suddenly would translate into a very you know clinical cold kind of language that's also something we would not expect and the patterns in those two environments we track and the moment those patterns fundamentally change, typically there's something that in behavior, management wants to be aware of.
0: So, So this would not be a useful measure for the entirety of an organization, but it's something that you want to look deeper into individual clusters inside of the organization. And so the deeper that you look, the more people are going to think that you uh, are looking at the behavior of individuals rather than aggregate behavior. Let's talk a little bit about how you make sure that privacy is respected in the analysis that you do.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think privacy for us is, um, first and foremost, it's, it's a fundamental human right. I mean, there's been a lot of conversations going on on Big Brother, Um, and of course, we've all followed the news on Cambridge Analytica, which has not done the conversation much good, I guess. So, uh, so we've taken a different view to that. So, um, we've got a process which is called Privacy by Design. So, for us, as a vendor, it is impossible to single out an individual and analyze their conversations. We simply cannot do it because we don't have the data. So, the way how we capture the data, I would like you, like I said before, to think about as a spam filter. So we don't actually store any emails. We just render a signal from a group of individuals of at least 10. And the industry standard, for example, in the survey business is to use groups of at least four people. So we've at least doubled that standard by taking groups of at least 10. But social science teaches us that Uh, emotions are very contagious so it's a very reliable way to tap into such a group and if their color changes you want to know so as we don't store data from individuals but we only measured an index number from the group it becomes impossible for us to actually look at individual or breach individual privacy what we also do though is we inform all the individual employees that we're having a measurement And we offer them an opportunity to opt out. So if given all those precautions, people still feel uncomfortable, they're all fine to opt out. The reality is that our opt-out ratios are very modest. So usually it's typically less than 5%. Because the funny thing is that if people decide to even opt out and they see the energy that actually gets unleashed because of the entire measurement, usually they want to back in. Because people start to realize actually that they're being heard, right? Right? And this is very interesting because very often in organizations, there's a lot of complaints going on of people who talk to the leadership and feeling nothing actually happens. What you see with our clients is because now in typical clusters, there's a conversation going on why the index performs in a certain way. People don't want to be left out. So I think privacy by design for us is the standard, the way we operate and it's impossible for us to measure individuals and uh, the index number really, I think, is a safe bet to say that groups of at least ten people, individuals who are completely okay, and if they don't, they just don't participate. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, Sorry. So, so let me take it a step further. Yeah. Well, on the privacy topic, yes, but let, let's take it a step further. So, so you have this measure, and you know that the measure changes over time, uh, but this is all new territory, and so. So how do you tell if the change in the
1: measure is a good thing or a bad thing? That's a very good question. I think that um, that by itself has certain judgment in it uh, because good or bad, you (laughs) know, it's over in the eye of the beholder. Um, I think that in general, what we measure is a product of personal involvement and tension. So, um, I'd like you to think of language as a situation where in a situation of high tension and high personal involvement, that typically is a good situation. Because when things, uh, think of it as uh, a department leader who tells his team, you know, we're under pressure, we're gonna give it our best shot, people know that there's a certain risk we may lose this battle, but we're all involved to make it into a success. So the tension is high, but the personal involvement is also high. You know, go to any war zone, you will know that those Marines that are fighting for the country, they're all highly involved, but the tension for sure is high. You can also imagine situations in an organization where tension is high and the involvement is low. And there, unfortunately, you'll find, you know, in political organizations, I don't like to use the word, but people have covered their ass, so they don't really care where the things are going south because they're not getting hurt. That's an environment I'd rather not be in because I would imagine that there was risks looming that leaders want to know about. So polarizing highly, when tension is high and the involvement is high, this is pretty good. When involvement is low, you want to be alerted to it. When tension is low, it can be very trivial uh, because it could go into mundane, you know, regular tasks. But I think that's pretty much the space where good or bad houses, if you ask that question. And leaders can start to realize when they look at the tool, and they can start asking questions, and then they can make up their own mind whether that's good or bad. But at least now you are aware to the situation. That's great. So there are
0: more than a few companies who claim to be able to look at the network in an overall organization or other aspects of the overall organization. How are you different from them?
1: If you talk about networks of organizations, there's a great uh, landscape out there uh, today on network analysis. O&A vendors, uh, and I, I think the O&A space is very intriguing. We also know some players out there, and we're working actually with some players out there today. Um, <clears throat> our clients are hot to work with organizational network analysis vendors because it's uh, one of those, you know, topics that is on everybody's radar screen. Um, so that's good. The same goes for survey providers. I think that's a tool that never will actually will fade away because it's a very valuable tool to you know to drill deep. However, I think where we play, it's a space where you're talking about actual intelligence. Because with us, you know, the, the typical ONA A network of who talks to whom, we always like to call a two D manual, a two D analysis. It doesn't change much over time. Uh, and once you understand, you know, the the profile or the spider web of the organization, you can start to really zoom into groups, which I think is a very worthwhile exercise. I'd like to call KingCorp more of a 3D analysis because with us, you don't only know the roadmap of who talks to whom, but you also know where the traffic jams are because traffic jams is the places where you have a, you know, a tension situation or as I'd like to call it a blind spot or a hotspot and typically, that's where you really want to start focusing your attention, because if, if it goes on for too long, it could turn into a situation where ultimately you are surprised as a leader, because something's cooking that you may not want to happen. So I think the, the landscape is so far, is if I if I judge it well, it's very much still centered around, you know, it's HR taking pulses of the organization. We're trying to pivot away into a, a tool that actually helps business leaders or the board if you will to get a good grip on what's going on with the people because once that's there and if a, an organization is truly connected right it can become this thing that's called an irresistible culture
0: oh you think that's you think you can help people get to an irresistible culture that's an interesting concept
1: yes i think ultimately this is very interesting i, I may be crazy but i think ai there's a lot of work going on around that domain now and i know there's also a lot of noise to be honest john but i think ai really is good in one thing only is that it can automate parts where we are weak and uh, we as humans have one characteristic that's omnipresent for all races i think it's we're highly biased <laughs> and i think this is where our tool actually helps to take away some of that bias because we continuously measure that language And the moment you start to get a picture of that and the pattern and you start to have a conversation, you can detect that some leaders simply are blind to their own behavior. So that's where AI, I think, ultimately can help people better connect. Because once you talk about a graph, I don't have to actually offend you. You can just say, John, did you see the same graph as I do? And what is your take on it, right? It's much less offensive than going to talk to you and say, John, I heard there's a lot of complaints about your department and you will automatically go into a defense mode saying, who said that, right? But right now, right. I think the computer helps us to start a conversation when there are situations that you can still repair. So if that is a possibility, I would love to see that right now becoming something that is mainstream.
0: That's, that's good. So, so there's some level of modeling and AI embedded in the product how do you how do you let customers know where that is? That's a, that's a big problem that that people have deploying AI is is that they, they don't often know that they have it. Um, so so what what does training look like when you bring this in and you give it to somebody and all of a sudden they've got this new measure? Um, um, how do you help them understand what to do with it?
1: Okay. Um... We normally start with the client by uh, offering them a retrospective analysis, which we call a vulnerability scan. So it shows over a period of one or two years in the past what happened. And what we always do is we we try to correlate that to critical events because the good news is that once you got your graph and you can all remember what happened six months ago when this big company was acquired or there was a layoff or there was a huge customer coming along, or there was a reorganization, people see and they start to become aware like, okay, apparently that was also visible in our language. So we train usually some leadership teams to understand how to then take that piece of information and that awareness that within our language, these kind of signals are hidden only for us to discover them. We then start to cascade that level of awareness to other parts of the organization. Right? It's, like a, it's like a wave, if you will. And when you start with a star team that is completely comfortable with this, and, and believe me, the first two, three weeks, people are really asking themselves, what am I looking at? Right? Because it's new. And we've got to accept that. There is not a golden answer because everybody responds differently when you first start wearing that Apple Watch and you start counting your steps Some of us are natural athletes and others of us simply are are scared, right? But we'll help them by understanding the language. And within a month, people start to get their first grips because they'll start to say, hey, I'd like to just give a training, right? Because sometimes, especially in HR, people like to quantify and label this as an engagement training. That's all fine. In compliance, people may like to use this as a compliance tool, Right? Business leaders might like to use this as an alignment tool. So there's different kind of groups that people basically practice this tool with. Ultimately, for us, it cascades up to a leadership effectiveness tool. And leaders want to really understand how can I align my people strategy with my company strategy? And I think this is really where ultimately it's kind of a generic and ubiquitous kind of instrument to pick up behavior and leverage this into better performance. Does that help?
0: So so that's, what's interesting about what you just said is that the alignment of people strategy and business strategy um, is the kind of esoteric thing that people talk about ad nauseum, but never really have a way of doing because because we haven't had dynamic measures of these things. Right? And so... <laughs> So we're starting a new era here where ongoing, real-time, dynamic measures that are not rooted in the kind of bias that cloud surveys uh, is starting to be possible. And sort of the the cutting edge of that, uh, how do you imagine this unfolding? What do you think some of the positive consequences of this will be over time?
1: Well. Uh, I think the best consequence I can believe is that we're a bit less lonely. It may sound kind of uh, uh, cheesy, (laughs) if that's the right word, but there's a lot of people in companies, but also outside companies, which are awfully lonely, especially in this digital world. And if we've got a tool here for people to better connect, that's just amazing. It doesn't only translate in better, uh, you know, profitability, because that business case already has been proven for long but it also just creates a super better business culture. And think of it in Silicon Valley. I was recently in San Francisco. You know, there's this massive story on success, but recently also there has been some pretty painful meltdowns. Ultimately, it's the people that go back home with a bad day, right? And if we can help just producing a percentage of those bad days because there's more attention, I've had a good career, my friend.
0: Well, that's 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 a grand ambition. Now, I, I just was down in Silicon Valley last night at the an ethics and technology um, event, and and I wonder what you think beyond privacy, the ethical issues are that that uh, Corp touches.
1: Yeah, well, um, privacy, like I said, is such an such a large topic. Uh, it's also sometimes. Um, I can tell you, we've we've probably had two, three years of delay because of the entire privacy debate. It's like world peace. You cannot disagree on it. Uh, And if people are scared, that's okay. Um, But this whole thing, you know, ultimately it's going to translate in some new form that actually is palatable to all of us. And I think this is where we've taken a pretty strong stance on on how we want to design this. And there are simply... Many, many customers right now or many businesses that are not qualified to work with this because they are you know, in a, in a different space. But we find also many clients right now that are actively looking for solutions to work with privacy and respect it, but also acknowledge that it's much more important to reach out to your people. One of the big pitfalls is that we've been trained to look for root causes, right? And that's one of the ethical things once you look for root cause, it's like who said what, when that led to that result. This is where I'm, I'm very honest that AI simply cannot answer that question today. There's simply not enough data and the number of false positives that really points us in the wrong direction is so massive that we've decided to really stay away from that. We just offer a signal and if people want to go for the root cause, then we simply cannot sell to them because we don't have the answers yet. Secondly, I think like on privacy side, if, if I tell you how many clients ask us the question, can you please just zoom in on that individual because I'd like to, you know, fire the person or so. It is just amazing because it's, it's the most natural question to ask if you start measuring, right? But our stance is very simple. It's a transparent tool. If you don't want to be transparent, you know, let's just wait for a couple of years because we can't be your partner. Um, And on the root cause side, I've said already, I don't think the AI is that far uh, away to give some real answers there. But what we can do is we can open up your eye to blind spots. And if you're then happy to work with us to resolve them, it does also challenge many people because many leaders actually don't want to know. So if you're afraid to look at the truth, that's an ethical question, right? But let me ask it in a different way. If your wife was having an affair, would you want to know about that right? so the um, leaders that are are ready <clears throat> to take action and connect to their people, they'll find this to be the right tool for them at this point in time
0: so I want to double back on something you you said one of the most interesting things I've heard in a long time, which is that you don't focus on root cause, and so I'd translate that to mean that what you provide uh, is a measure of tension, not an explanation for the tension, kind of like a blood pressure monitor. So I get a blood pressure, but it doesn't tell me why my blood pressure is like that. It just tells me about my blood pressure and the discovery of what the actual problem is and what I need to do about that is a separate thing from the measurement. And I think exactly. that's really interesting because most of the measures that I see come with the sort of implicit assumption that there's a, an obvious solution to come out of the measures. That's really interesting. Absolutely. So so how did you arrive at
1: that? That's, that's fascinating. Well, um, I was a CFO for quite a while, and what really transformed my thinking was when SAP <laughs> came to the market, so it tells you that I'm quite old, by the way, but Uh, the entire promise of ERP and MRP materials requirements planning is from an industrial perspective already as old as Rome but what SAP did it just changed the way data was being captured if you look at HR or if you look at let's say human capital the way data is being captured still today it is still predominantly through surveys and I think surveys are great but they have one limitation they capture conscious behavior because I ask you a question with a request to answer it. What we capture is unconscious behavior. And that I think really it becomes a different kind of data capture, which is just like what I said about ASAP. SAP came and they just promised they would real-time capture the information and all render it into one piece of information. That's the same thing we do, but now not for machines, but on people. And I think that just opens up a complete new realm of intelligence that so far has not been part of our conversation.
0: Well, I agree with you. I, I think that the Keaton Corp software is some of the most impressive stuff that I've seen in the last 10 years. So so I'm excited to have had this chance to talk about it and um, look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for doing this, Victor. Would you take a moment and introduce yourself and tell people how to get a hold of you?
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me again, John. I really appreciate it. My name is Victor <coughs> Mirovich. I'm one of the founders of Keen Corp, And uh, if people want to know more, they can visit our website, KeenCorp.com. And we usually uh, you know, publish some news on it, but uh, we're more than welcome to take calls because we're a young company and eager to grow.
0: Thanks again for doing this. We've been talking with Victor Morovic, who is the uh, one of the co-founders and CEO of KeenCorp. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for doing this, Victor, and we will see you back here same time next week. Bye-bye now.